Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take one look, and you'll see. You could join Cyberfrog Nation. Come with me, Cyberfrog 3. Going back, red extermination. <laughs> Sorry. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built nerd culture. And boy howdy do we have a special guest for you today. He is a comic book artist, a writer, a legend, and a ne'er-do-well depending on who you speak with. He is Ethan Van Skyver, the creator of Cyberfrog, a comic book series about an anthropomorphic frog superhero who fights against a swarm of murderous evil hornets. He is also known for his fabulous artwork and writing. Ethan has worked at both major comic book companies. He's worked on titles like Green Lantern, X-Men, The Flash, and more. Today we're going to talk with Ethan about his latest crowdfunder for Cyberfrog number 3, Red Extermination, which you can find at Indiegogo right now. We will discuss Ethan's cancellation story, the ins and outs of comic book publishing. We will discuss how he makes such inedible action figures, the hashtag comics broke me campaign. Plus, we will speak about the sad state of Disney, Marvel, and the MCU. This is going to be an amazing conversation, folks. You don't want to miss this. So please get comfortable, relax, and enjoy this interview with Ethan Van Skyver. I feel like you you probably built built me up too much. I don't think it's going to be amazing at all. I think it's going to be boring, uh, uh, ponderous. It, I kind of set you up as like the Mount Rushmore of comic book artists. You're, yeah, you're I know. The, you're in the same. You're in Lincoln spot. I kicked out Lincoln. I'm, put you in. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'll do my best. I'll try. Uh, I'll try to be interesting, as interesting as one of the faces on Mount Rushmore, stony, pallid, um, you know. Uh, immobile unmoving impassive i'll do my best cool have you been to mount rushmore uh i live in south dakota so i've been many times oh no i i don't i live in new jersey so i've only seen pictures of it and heard people uh like ben and jerry's ice cream complaining about it saying we need to return it to the uh, indigenous people and i love the idea of indigenous people and things being returned to them i love that I'm, I'm fond of it because I consider myself and so do all my friends the uh, indigenous fandom of comics. We were here first. Uh, what are you purple-haired creeps doing squatting uh, around our locale? <clears throat> I, feel like, uh, I feel like we were given blankets. You know what I mean? Poisonous blankets, poxed blankets. Uh, and I, told, I, I feel like we were pushed away. I don't know why. We, we are the indigenous fandom. It's time to return comics fandom to us. This is a good place to jump off of. Last time we talked, we went through um, kind of like your origin story, your time with DC and Marvel and how you got pushed out of comics. Um, but eventually you did find your way back and, you know, you are in so many ways the leader in crowdfunding comics at the moment, independent money comics. I think there's some that like they get close or in competition with you for like pure dollar amount. But I think in terms of influence and effect on the independent comic space, I think you have a great uh, leadership role there. So I'm really excited to talk about this. You know, it was only just last month we had hashtag comics broke me. Uh, we just talked about this with uh, Justin World, who just made a slight comment on Twitter to all these comic artists and uh, professionals from the world of the comic book industry 
criticizing them. He was like, look, a lot of your complaints here are just like normal work things that everyone has to deal with. Before that, he was hounding. He had people that came after all his artists. He had people saying emails and, and advice for contract law to his freelancers. He had people come back to him who, who like worked previously and were great. But he's like, well, I got all these emails. They tell me I should be making X and Y. So I've been no longer, unless you raise the amount you're paying me, you're going to lose me. Well, this is a thing like, yeah, like, you know, uh, he's experiencing the creeps of comics. Uh, I would like to say if comics were a person, uh, I would like to ask comics for one wish. Uh, please, uh, my one wish, break these people harder, comics. Break them harder. They deserve it. Uh, they are uh, some of the worst people on the face of the earth. These people who uh, insist on making art, nobody asks for it. Nobody wants these people who are saying comics broke me. Nobody asked you to do comics. Nobody cares if you do comics or not. The world's not going to end if you stop making stupid cartoons about your menstrual cycle. Nobody cares. No, I, like seriously, nobody's asking you to make art. If you make art, you suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of the art that these people make. Sometimes entire industries suffer because of the art that they make and they complain about being broken. I think they need to be broken harder. Uh, and uh, maybe reconsider some of their life choices. And when you confront them with these facts, they always do. They, they come at you like, uh, you know, in mobs and swarms uh, and say hurtful, cruel things. Listen, there's a demand for my artwork. That's why comics haven't broken me, and they never will. Uh, there's a demand. People want what I make. So comics will never break me. In fact, they will enrich me for the rest of my career, the rest of my life. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I... I find it strange to the, the comics broke me hashtag, this constant seeking of validation and pity. Uh, I have none to give, none, zero. That's my, I'm, I'm in a similar boat with you. And I think a lot of people who, who actually like comics, read comics, follow comics are very put off because these people, why they may complain about, you know, the poor state of the industry, they're the ones that were in charge. They, they pushed out everyone else. So they have no one else to blame but themselves for the bad contracts, for treating freelancers like crap, for, you know, being rather unartistic uh, sellouts. But it's like, well, there's no one else to complain about. You pushed out Ethan Van Skyver. You pushed out someone like Chuck Dixon. <laughs> it, it, it's now it's just you and Heather Antos and like Vita Ayala. And I mean, it's not very nice to say, but God it's kind them. of what you deserve. You earned this. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's like having a, a lazy, drug-addicted, layabout teenager uh, who kicks his parents out of the house somehow and then just wonders why he's not being fed breakfast and why his uh, underpants haven't been washed. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, listen, there were people who were running the comic book industry who cared about comics, like seriously cared about comics, cared about these characters, uh, the, these big corporate characters. Cared about keeping them, uh, <clears throat> perpetuating them for another generation. And uh, those people, uh, a lot of them uh, have either been, here, here's one thing, either they've been kicked out of the industry uh, or because of the incompetence of the people running the comic book industry right now, uh, the, the industry can no longer really afford them. I mean, they're hanging on to Jim Lee by their balls. Like they're, you know, this is the whole thing. Like, you know, Jim Lee, we got to pay you. How long? How much more money do we have to pay you to keep drawing comics under these circumstances? A lot, millions, and it's a real shame. Uh, you know, at one point the comic book industry was prosperous, and and talented people were driven, were 
you know, um, motivated uh, were incentivized to work here and to make comics and no more. It's amazing the just juxtaposition between what we have in uh, Western comics, so the Anglosphere and what we're doing with comic books, versus what you see you know, in the Eastern countries, particularly Japan, but not just. Hong Kong has a thriving independent comic scene. South Korea has its own kind of version of that with Manhua. I mean, th- these are industries that aren't in the millions of dollars. So that's kind of where the U.S. Uh, comic book industry is. Right, yeah. They're in the billions of dollars. They're, they're, they're putting out books that are, you know, out of... Uh, uh, neck and neck with the Bible in terms of sales. Uh, to be fair, though, they do eat rodents on sticks that they deep fry. I don't know if you've seen that. They eat insects. Uh, they eat pretty much everything. If you go to certain uh, areas in Asia, anything that has a pulse is lunch. Uh, as long as you put it on a stick and fry it, they'll eat lizards. So, you know, I I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I can't necessarily condemn American culture for uh, not wholeheartedly embracing uh, tentacle pornography and hentai, uh, you know, uh, and making those uh, perpetrators, the perpetrators of that artwork wealthy. I don't, you know, Americans don't need to do that. We have other choices like uh, anything, like anything else, I guess. I don't know. So I don't know either because it, it's so interesting. You look at like the the manga and anime culture and how big it is, how thriving. It's like, What they're basically doing is they're taking, you know, these are just black and white comics, basically, that they'll put out once a week or, you know, once a month, and then that eventually gets adapted into a bigger thing, and then from that, they get, you know, the merchandise sales and franchises and all kinds of big projects. You know, it turns into real money, but the original product it starts at isn't all that complicated. And for me, it's like, why couldn't you Western comics do that? I mean, there's nothing in my mind that says, oh, we can't, you know, build a fan base expand upon it, grow that sphere up and up, and with it comes the money. But even with like, and this is a long time complaint, I know you've made it before as well, it's like they do a big superhero movie, Marvel does or DC, and then you look at the comics, the comics, there's like no connection. There's no interest in trying to to connect the two or use the marketing buzz to push up the comics. It's just all kind of uh, brain dead and flat. Yeah, um, yes. I, I really don't think that, um, no, I just don't think the people that are working, most of the people that are working in mainstream comics are that connected to them, on the, to the characters, uh, the way normal people are. I mean, Iron Man is a normie character. Superman is for everybody. You know, Batman's for everybody. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of the people who are, um, who find themselves in positions of power in, in mainstream comics now are, are more interested in pushing personal, social, political agendas and using characters that everybody loves in order to do that, poisoning them uh, with their weird radical gender ideology. that That's their main concern. And meanwhile, Hollywood, you know, uh, listen, comics have always been dangling by a thread. Uh, you know, the, the, their parent company said, why are, why are you here again? Why are we paying you? And they'd say, oh, you know why? Because um, we provide you cheap research and development. We've got creators here who who can write good superhero stories for you and and do it for not very much money, and and then you guys could turn them into multi billion dollar movies and all this other stuff. And it's all because you paid some guy, you know, five thousand dollars to write a story. Uh, that's why we're here. We're, we exploit talent for you, you know, for you. We're we're talent exploiters. 
Uh, and that used to make sense. They, Hollywood and, and you know, the, the, the higher ups, the muckety mucks of these parent companies would go, oh, OK, well, I, I guess. Well, I mean, over time, it's just become clear that almost anybody can write a better Batman story than anyone we have working for us here in comics. Uh, almost anyone can. Well, they'll borrow a few ideas here and there, and they'll sort of give half-hearted credit. Of course, I've received special thanks on more than one occasion. A lot of people say I'm one of the most thanked, and sometimes unthanked, when I should have been thanked, uh, people in comics. And I get the special thanks at the end of movies. Um, but for the most part, anyone in Hollywood can write a better Batman story than we can, and, and they know that. And when they try to bring comic book people over there to sort of monitor the content in Hollywood, they're, they're static. They, Hollywood, those, the people who make movie screenwriters over there, I don't think they respect us very much. I suspect that they don't respect us very much. Uh, and so uh, we're becoming more and more obsolete here. There, our, our reason for existence is no longer about making cheap stories for movies. Now we've got to make cheap stories for comic books that's sad that's scary uh, because uh, most of us uh, most of these people don't even like comics anyway so that is one of the hard things i think people learn when they in, in the uh in 2023 it's probably been this way maybe 2014 2015 is when i noticed it where it, it feels like comics doesn't act, the people who run comics who are in comics don't actually like the medium all that much and the audience they cater to doesn't buy it it is the strangest thing it's it's the weirdest fandom to have because i don't know of another another medium that has quite the same uh, grouchy dynamic it, it is sad though because i think even that you're like you're pointing out like this idea that comics would be the idea factories that, that that's even falling apart because we look at something like secret invasion you know they took that great uh, marvel event story and then just turned it into a tv show uh which I personally think is a waste. I think it might have been pretty good as a phase on its own. People just aren't interested at all in all of this. Even Bob Iger, who does play a fairly significant role in, in watering down the love for superhero films and entertainment, he's saying that they've done too much. So I, I don't know I don't know where things go. I hope eventually comics bounce back, but I just don't know if how long the mainstream can keep doing it. Unlike what you and so many people are doing in the independent space. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I think they they became addicted to. Um, oh, it's the same thing that that happened to comics in the '90s. They became addicted to enormous blockbusters. It's like if uh, X Men number one by Jim Lee sells eight million copies, we got to do more of that. Uh, we're not really selling eight million copies of anything to anyone except for retailers. But yeah, like a lot of these superhero movies overperforming a billion dollars. Unless you're now you're spending enough money, you're spending. $400 million to make a movie in the hopes that you'll also, you know, get a, a billion dollars for the box office. And that's a big success. And there's just no reason to tell stories anymore. It's all spectacle. Uh, spending money on CGI, spending money on costumes and sets. Uh, really just uh, not worried, not not too worried about stories. And, and the idea that you could actually tell a smaller story. You look at uh, Blumhouse Productions. Uh, and you see what he's doing. Uh, remember the Paranormal Activities movies where there's a story there. And he, he spent $3 to make a movie with a, a camcorder and it ended up making $200 million in profit. Story, story, story. Stop spending so much money to put ugly shit on the movie screen in the hopes 
that you're going to super overperform at the box office and trick people into going and sell drink cups and you know all of this other stuff and just focus on the story. Everything else will come. Uh, the the Flash was an abomination. Uh, I did sit through. I did sit through that movie. That was absolutely terrible. Most of the the stuff that I I'd seen um, from Marvel up until the point where I quit watching Marvel stuff, the MCU. I just don't know what the story is. I, I couldn't tell you, you know, some of the comic books that I've been reading from Marvel and DC, I, I couldn't really remember to tell you what any of the stories were. I have very few exceptions, usually written by Mark Miller and Grant Morrison. I, I don't remember m what most of the stories were that I read. Um, and that's too bad. I want, I think we should be focused on creating unforgettable stories uh, that pull at the heartstrings and move you. Definitely. That's kind of how, how you describe the Flash movies, kind of how I felt, too. I just felt like, blah, you know, I, uh, the sh shoulder shrug emoji. It's I was unclean. I felt like I needed a shower. I You know, one Ezra Miller is too many. Two Ezra Millers, and the fact that one of them is supposed to be younger, and he's like, out of, he's adopted a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure uh, accent, and then the other one's older and sort of grooming the younger one. And they seem to be in some sort of a loving relationship between the two of them. That was abominable. I really, um, uh, that was like uh, cinematic Ipecac. I really felt like uh, vomiting uh, when I watched that. And I still think about it sometimes. I still think about what I, what I went through uh, with that movie. Uh, it was a, an ugly, dark experience uh, that tried my soul. Uh, and it was supposed to be good. And, you know, it contained a lot of ideas that came from me, some visuals that came from me. I feel like I was abused. I was going to say, you were, you did work, you know, when they had the, when Flashpoint was the big event and they wanted to um, uh, switch out for uh, a new continuity. The flat, I, I don't, you know, which eventually becomes New 52 and everything. But you were working on some of those comics that was Flashpoint. And I absolutely love Flashpoint. It's probably my favorite event comic series just because the story and the dialogue and then just the, the, the change of flavor and characters is just handled all so well. It's a great comic, uh, both the main story and then, you know, all the little uh, supporting spinoffs. But I was really frustrated because I felt like this is a really good story. Flashpoint is is genius. It's it's one of my favorite comics of all time, and I'm probably giving it too much credit. But but the, to me, it's like there is a great story here. It has great emotional beats. There's a there's a pattern. You know, it's like uh, great music. There's a rhythm to it. You, composition cues, and it's like that's what you go with. But instead, they 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 did almost kind of like what Marvel tried to do with Planet Hulk. And they just kind of took some of the framing and then they completely swapped it out for much more generic stuff. And it was frustrating to me because it's like you don't need to mess with Flashpoint. Flashpoint is a strong enough story on its own. You you don't need to be going in and, and uh, hankering with that. But that's and exactly it, what happened. So I felt like people who, who th if they think of the Flashpoint story, maybe they didn't read in comics. You know, part of me is thinking, well, a lot of them are probably thinking that it's a lot like this movie. And, and which is a shame because there there is a fantastic story, and uh, it just makes it that much harder to bring people to the comics audience. It's like if your comic book movie makes people less likely to see or read a comic book, I think that's a major problem. But yeah, that would be a failing. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I agree. 
Um, I, I wanted a point, a funny exchange I saw on Twitter. It was about two, three weeks ago. There was someone yelling at you about something about politics comics, and they're like, and you know, and there's this proud Latina Green Lantern character, Jessica Cruz, and you, you know, take that bigot, and then <laughs> I, I almost like I almost spat out my drink because it was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I'll bet that, that that keeps you up at night, doesn't it, Comicsgate? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I created that character. You know, I did a, I, I listen, and that was a shock to them. I, I don't understand why they brought that up. That was really funny. You know, it's like, why hit me with Jessica Cruz of all characters? I, I co-created Jessica Cruz. Um, so I've contributed to uh, diversity. I've, I've contributed to inclusion and all that. And I, I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with diversity um, as such. I think you know, comics should reflect the world outside your window. I think that was a really smart idea. Um, I think there's a, there's something about um, being hyper-focused on diversity uh, that can be uh, distracting. You know, you, you're just aware of it. Uh, I'm aware as I look at the new Snow White and the Seven Dwarves imagery that just came out from Disney uh, that, uh, first of all, have you seen this yet? Have you seen this image? Yes, it's bizarre. They, they they decided since they couldn't have dwarves because that's too politically incorrect, they decided to get one dwarf and then six normal normal sized actors. And then their outfits are so it, it looks like it looks like it looks cheap, but it also has like a, like a late Woodstock kind of hippie vibe to it. It, it looks awful. Like I it, see it many looks insane. many cosplayers yeah. that have done a much better job for a lot less money. So you've got Snow White who uh, is called Snow White because her skin is fair. So she's literally a Caucasian, which, like, I'm not somebody who's going to sit there. I'm not going to take the bait all the time. Like, now I'm just going to laugh. Like, making Little Mermaid black was just meant to upset people. I mean, really, it was meant to sort of, they, they couch it with this sort of like, no, we're letting little girls of color see themselves as a mermaid. It's bullshit. They mostly do it just to annoy people. Uh, that's, they're social justice warriors. That's what they do. But Snow White is especially egregious. You've got Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, and Disney decided to do this even though they would they were unwilling to just have a Caucasian Snow White. So they make her Latina. All right, guys, whatever. Like, I'm not going for this. But the real uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not taking your bait, Disney. I'm not taking your bait on this. I'm just gonna go, you know what? Whatever. But what's shocking? Uh, is the movie, Disney seems to think dwarves don't exist and it's a racist term. Dwarfism is a real thing. They call themselves little people, but they also do call themselves dwarves. They say, yeah, we're dwarves. Uh, and this is, a, this is the perfect opportunity. This is astonishing. Perfect opportunity to give them representation in a movie because the movie is about them. The movie is about them. You don't have to change anything, Disney. It's literally Snow White. Okay, you don't want to do a white girl there? That's whatever. But this is seven dwarfs, little people who exist. And, you know, you would have to you would have to bend things in order to give these people inclusion. You have to write movies that include little people just to include little people and dwarves in these movies. Like uh, Wizard of Oz and other things like that. Willow. Uh, you know, these opportunities... Uh, that that these uh, these people get to be on screen and be represented. You have seven opportunities now to cast them, and you don't do it. You uh, Disney doesn't do it. They go, well, we can't do that. That would be too 
controversial. I, I don't know, Seven Dwarfs? It's the year 2023. It isn't bigoted. It would literally be inclusion. And instead, what you've done is you put one dwarf in there, one dwarf, and six just the Burger King Kids Club, just random hippies. You got white hippies, uh, dirty hippies. You've got a uh, couple of black people. You got some uh, uh, Puerto Ricans in there. I don't know what's going on. But none of them are dwarves except for one. Six regular-sized people. And why? And why? Why do you do that? What is the reason for that? I mean, that is unbelievable. That's what SJWs would call cultural appropriation. Most of the time, their standards are this. I'm sorry. You have a movie with a trans character, and you have a heterosexual, regular, cisgendered person playing that trans? That role should have gone to a real trans person. To which I go... Are those the rules these days? Okay, if those are the rules, then they should be applied equally across the board. Why do you have what I call bigots, if they're like midgets, you know what I mean? Like regular-sized people would be bigots. You know, little people, big people, all right? Why are you putting bigots in the role of uh, dwarves? Why? I don't understand it, and it's gone haywire. Their own rules... They've contradicted their own rules, and it makes me absolutely insane. And we have to deal with these people all the time in the creative arts, and I don't think it's right. If you have rules like that, if you say, you know what, only black people can pay black people, can play black people, uh, only gay people can play gay people, uh, only um, Eastern Indians can play Eastern Indian characters. We don't do anything, uh, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we allow these people to represent, to be represented. Well, then why couldn't you put seven little people on the screen? And Disney has to explain themselves. They are going off the rails. Disney needs to explain themselves to the little people of the world. How come six of you didn't get a job? And instead, we hired six extremely unpleasant-looking people. Instead, extremely unpleasant-looking. And they really are hideous. It's not, it's not as though you're putting beautiful people on the screen for me to look at. You're putting six extremely hideous, regular-sized people. Who are these people? It's not as though it's Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston who said, we'd love to play the dwarves. It's not as though... No, these are (laughs) anonymous, hideous people that you put in these roles. And it makes me very angry. I guess I did take the bait. That would be fabulous, though. That would be fabulous, though, if it was all celebrity casting for the dwarves. Oh, sure. You know, maybe, uh, you know, in the old days, it would have been like, uh, I don't know, uh, Morton Downey Jr., Ringo Starr, and Charles Nelson Riley. Surprise, we're the dwarves. <laughs> but no, it's not. It's it's just these six regular people. I don't understand it. You know, they're not making, first of all, George Lucas doesn't have Ewoks anymore. It's not as though they're making, they're not a ton of roles. George Lucas, one of the kindest. Friends to the little people community. That guy invented roles for the little people. He did. He he said, We got Ewoks this time. You know, we got robots like R2D2. We gotta put a little person in there. And now you've got this whole group of people in Hollywood who don't care about little people. They're gonna hire a full size person and what? Use midgetal effects? What is the plan exactly? Are you going to reduce uh, the size of these regular people on screen, you don't have to do that. You don't have to use digital effects. You can actually just hire uh, actual dwarfs. And that's that I'm an advocate for the little people. 
I just want to say that I'm an advocate for them. I'm like Dewey Cox. Remember when he wrote that song? All the elevator buttons so incredibly that, high. What's that movie? Uh, Walk Hard? Walk Hard. I stand today for the midget half the size of a regular guy. That guy was an activist. My kind of activist. All right. Sorry. Anyway. No, you're you're fine. Look, I know a lot of people are exasperated. It's it's really it's a, if I'm being honest, the thing about the Snow White and the Seven Doors that really kind of offends me is like this is the Walt Disney Company. Okay, Snow White is one of the most important films ever in animation. It was the first full length feature animated film. It's a super important movie. Very important. A lot of people loved it. Adolf Hitler. It was his favorite film. Did you know that? I did not know that. He, well, he, Eva Braun liked uh, Gone with the Wind, but Adolf Hitler loved Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and, uh, you know, he used to have it screened for him over and over and over again. He would scream, like, play it again. Oh, no. no. Like, Mark Shine! Mark Shine! Oh, no, Air Fuhrer, he wants us to watch Snow White again. Mm-hmm. That was his favorite film. You can look that up. That's a historical fact. Tell him so... I have a headache. I've already seen it eight times this week. Is it? I don't know what happened to my accent. It switched from German to, uh... I thought it was good. But it is seriously frustrating. It's like these companies have been blessed with a stewardship, with a legacy they can protect and promote and safeguard, and they just don't want to do it. And it's so it's like for most normal people, it's like, what's even the point of you then? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not and I think it, we're at that stage now. Disney used to, and I totally agree, 100%, Disney made a lot of these choices on purpose to troll people. Because if you remember after um, the details about Obi-Wan started to come out, they sought out people to troll. And when they couldn't actually get anyone, because no one was going out there, oh, I'm not going to watch Star Wars because there's a black lady. Like, no no one said that. I, I can't even think of, like, like, one of those accounts is, like, 12 followers on Twitter. So then they, they basically just came, went out and made up their own. Like, they mm-hmm. made up people who were offended. And it's it's like... None of this is sustainable. Everyone said that. You said, you're going to do this, and eventually it will burn out everyone. And lo and behold, a year later, everyone is uh, burnt out. No, the people aren't attending the parks. The parks are kind of falling apart. No one really cares about the MCU. Star Wars, they could put out new Star Wars products, and no one's buying them. They could put out new Star Wars shows. Hardly anyone's watching it. it it's, it's bizarre. It's sad. It's, it's frustrating as someone that actually likes these properties and likes that legacy, but... I don't know what else someone could do than what you did, which is to go out and build your own thing. Go go work, go into the wilderness and grow something of your own that, that you can protect, that you can keep special, that will be appreciated instead of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah of, of uh, entertainment and comics over there at Disney. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, the again, it's, it's really nice. You know, people, uh, a lot of vegans are planting their own gardens, you know. And they grow their own vegetables because they know they can watch over uh, those vegetables and tube roots uh, and flowers and, and, you know, all that stuff. They can uh, they can tend to their own gardens and just make sure that they're creating safe, uh, viable foods. Uh, And uh, they don't you know, they don't need to worry about insecticides or anything like that infecting um, their nourishment because they know they're watching over it themselves. And, and that's, those are people who, uh, even though they're vegans and that's weird, uh, these are people who, who have taken um, their lives into their own hands. And, and I think that's the same thing as uh, uh, what we're doing here. All of us in, in Comicsgate and in the indie comics community, in, in my sphere, in my group, in my 
in my little family on the internet. Uh, we're all tending our own gardens. We've all planted our own seeds. And people say, uh, well, it's, you know, you're, you're up against a, a mighty forest uh, with these big corporations. How, how will you ever compete? Well, you got to plant a tree. Uh, it's the only way. Everybody has to plant a tree. And I, I don't know um, if we have any Walt Disney's here. I don't know if we have any George Lucas's, any J.R.R. Tolkien's. I don't know if we have uh, any J.K. Rowling's. I don't know if we have any L. Ron Hubbard's. But if we do, it's me. Uh, you know, these oh, people... Oh, no, this is the beginning of the cyber frog religion. It all yeah. started here. Yeah, let's just make it up as we go. You know, I, I don't know. Like, uh, we, you got to start somewhere. You got to plant a tree and tend to your little garden. Uh, tend to your forest. Tend to your ground. And just try to make something new. And eventually, it's not going to happen now. We don't have, we didn't know. I don't think people understood how quickly everything was going to get poisoned and ruined. Uh, but it does happen. And, and I would just tell people, make your own thing and then keep it. Keep it to yourself. Protect it. Don't sell out so quickly. That's so many, like, just perverts out there that are just so quick to sell out. Uh, they just, uh, they create something specifically for the purpose of pimping it out to the, to the uh, first person who comes along. Oh, you know, I really want Netflix to come and, and buy this terrible idea that I have. Well, I mean, spend a little time with it. You know what I mean? Develop it. Make it make it better. Make it something that's worth keeping. A lot of people looked at Mark Miller, who made a $50 million deal with Netflix, but it took him 20 years to get there. It took him 20 years to develop something that was worth that kind of consideration and worth that kind of money. Now he's just sitting on his ass saying things I only wish that I could say. Like like that guy, Mark Miller's out there, he's saying things that it's like only I, I, I wish that I could say those things, but I would be super duper quadruple canceled. He doesn't care. That's why I want to be, that's why I want to be rich. Be rich. <laughs> I, so I, I think can... though, in comparison in the world of comics, like you... Previous campaigns of yours have come closer, gone over the million dollar mark, even with your newest uh, newest one, Cyberfrog number three, Red Extermination. You already have almost 400,000, and your Kickstarter has been, sorry, your Indiegogo has been going like, what, a week, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's one week for Cyberfrog three, Red Extermination. And I, I you know, listen, I, uh, I I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm happy with um, how well it's, how well it's doing. I really appreciate everyone supporting it. It's, I think that the reason why it's doing so well, initially, you know, you've got your naysayers and doubters, um, you know, people who Eric July calls detractors, but to me, I call them future fans. Uh, they will all be converted. All of them will be converted to frog, um, even if it's by force. You bring up uh, anyway. They will. They will all be converted to frog, even if it's at you know uh, at the hands of a private military force, a, a militia that I build up to force people on to read Cyberfrog. Uh, as the Elron Hubbard of 2025, let's give me a couple of years to get there, give myself a little leeway. Uh, no, it's all about story. Uh, these people, they're, they're quick to be out there saying things like, this is just the right-wing grift. Well, what are they doing but left-wing grifting? I, I disagree with them profoundly that what I'm doing is right-wing grifting. I barely even mention Trump anymore. By the way, I'm thinking about making a cyber frog head to go on the action figure uh, with a MAGA hat. 
so you can just like switch a ma like a red MAGA hat on your side. But I'll, I'm doing a left wing one too with a pussy hat. So I, you know, you do it both ways. You know, you talk to everybody. You you communicate with both sides of the aisle and try to give people what they want. I really think that this is uh their left wing grift of just we're we're representing you. We're creating. We're taking these characters that Stanley created and we're making a version of that character that looks like you, except not as good, not as interesting as you. Uh, that's what we're doing right now. Well, that's a grift. We're doing a million variant covers. That's a grift that we're selling right to the. Uh, you know, retailers and forcing them to purchase one in 100 variant covers of books that they wouldn't be able to sell five copies of in order to get one copy that might be valuable. Maybe. I don't, I mean, who knows? That's a grip. What I'm doing is I'm telling a story. I'm creating, first of all, I'm creating a beautiful product. I'm first of all, no, not first of all, I'm telling a good story. First of all, 1998. Okay. It's 1998 and the prophesized invasion of planet earth um has occurred humanity has laid down for it humanity has said weird things like earth is for everyone okay earth is for everyone welcome our insect overlords right uh, and they've all just basically lost the will to fight uh, as the vespas these vicious alien hornets come down not a shot wasn't fired, you know, like we could have nuked them, but we didn't because we just, we didn't have the, we no longer possessed the will to do it. Uh, and uh, humanity was quickly overtaken without a fight. The Vespas took over planet Earth. Now there was a frog and a salamander who were sent by another planet. Uh, they're sent from another planet who were able to resist and repel this invasion when it came to them. They sent representatives here to Earth to stop. Uh, the alien invasion of the Vespas. But they spent the two years of time that they should have been spending preparing for this, eating junk food and watching MTV. Remember MTV in the 90s when it was good? I didn't really watch MTV a lot, but yes, I do. I do remember MTV in the 90s. That's when it, w it was more strictly just music videos. Right. Total Request Live, you know, all this stuff. Like Cyberfrog mostly watched it and threw things at it. Like he liked it but he hated it. You know, it's like, I hate it so much, but I'm still watching it. That, that was a wasted two years. And when the invasion came, they were not prepared and they were, Cyberfrog was defeated. Without Cyberfrog, Salamandroid found that he had very little purpose. Cyberfrog went into a regenerative hibernation for 20 years. And when he wakes up in the year 2018, uh, which is when the year when Cyberfrog Bloodhoney was first funded and returned, you understand? Cyberfrog was a character in the 1990s who disappeared for 20 years. While I uh, went and uh, created diverse characters for DC Comics, only to be awakened in the year 2018 again to a comic book industry, a world that is just unrecognizable, completely conquered by the Vespas, the, this hive mind of vicious bullies. Uh, and um, what do we do now? How do we, how do we solve this problem? Cyberfrog finds his friend Heather Swain, uh, who was his buddy in the 90s. She's surviving with humans in the woods. Uh, and uh, he, he immediately tries to gain a foothold. His job was to repel this invasion. 20 years on, three generations of Vespas have already been born here. They're, they're now citizens of Earth, the Vespas. It's, it's sick. So uh, Cyberfrog is just, how do I change things? How do I make things better for these humans? And he starts with Heather's kid. You know, he starts with Heather's 10-year-old daughter. Uh, they become friends. 
And he's just like, if I can make her happy, I, I can sort of can make her life better. Then that's a start. That is a start. If I can be a father figure, even though I'm a frog to this little child, maybe it'll make things better. But cyber frogs being in, being among these people has drawn attention to them. They've survived for 20 years without him, but he, uh, he brings attention to them, negative attention to them, obviously. And the end, the, the dark ending of chapter two, wreck planet with only a glimmer of hope leads us into cyber frog three glimmer of hope happens at the end of cyber frog two. Um, so that's the story. And then cyber frog three picks up the story from there. And we continue uh, a book called Red Extermination, where we, we find out that, you know, first of all, we learn that humans believe they are invisible to the Vespas when they're wearing the, the color red. Uh, third book's called Red Extermination. So it's, it's sad that Cyberfrog showed up and tried to uh, help these people, I think, when he was clearly meant to be a target uh, of the Vespas. And, and you know, uh, that's, that's the thing. So that's the story. And then the other thing to do is to make the product look like this. How do we get people to read comics? How do we get people to read comics? Well, the story has to be good. It has to be engaging. It has to have characters that kids could like and also adults can like that everybody can relate to. I am representing everyone with this frog because he doesn't look like any of us. It's what's in here and what's in here. His head, not, this is Lily. This is little friend Lily. That's Heather Swain down there, Lily's mom. It's what's in here that, that counts, and it's what people can relate to. See, that's, that's what inclusion, that's what diversity, that's all this stuff doesn't mean anything. Representation happens inside here. Can I relate to what he's doing? Do I understand his motivations? Do I understand the story? That's representation. If he were black or if he were white, or if he were gay or any of those things, he would only be appealing to, according to SJWs and the people who have destroyed comics, a very small margin of people who looked like him. The fact that he looks like nobody means everybody can relate to him if he's well-written. So we do that. We, we, that's, that's what we do. We offer this character that uh, can be related to by everyone. He's interesting for kids. And then we create beautiful, beautiful product that's desirable and collectible. And there are nine different versions of this comic. There are nine different variant covers that you can collect if you want to. We want, to, we want people to collect our comics. We want people to buy more than one copy of the book if that's what they want to do. That's how to sell more comics, by, by making desirable variant covers. But they don't need to. They only need one, one copy of the book, and then they need to read it. Uh, and the people who are reading it have lined up, people who did read Cyberfrog 1 and Cyberfrog 2 have lined up to purchase Cyberfrog 3. Not, not just purchase it, <clears throat> fund it. These books don't exist without support from people who care, okay? You're, you're actually saying, uh, I like this book. Uh, the third book isn't finished yet. I want to give you money so that you're able to finish it. Uh, and that's what crowdfunding is, and that's why it works. Um, is this the future of comics? I mean, you know, is this how people are going to have to make comics in the future? Now the brick and mortar stores are closing down and uh, the future of comics, even the, the most deluded optimists like Heidi McDonald at the beat are now confessing the, the future of comics looks really uncertain. You know, what's not uncertain, the future of storytelling. That's what's not uncertain. The future of storytelling is concrete. 
There, there, it will always be here. There will always be people who want to be told the story. Uh, there will be, there will never be enough people who want to be lectured to by cat piss stinking nitwits about gender ideology to support an industry. That's never going to happen. Never, ever, ever. The amount of people who want that is zero or close to zero. The amount of people who want to hear a story about a frog in the woods fighting bees. Perhaps millions. Perhaps millions. They just we need to get the story out there to people. So um, I feel good about comics. I feel optimistic about um, the future of the medium. Now, what I don't feel good about right now is the number of people who, uh, who are desperate to tell stories, who have a story inside of them uh, that needs to come out on the paper. They don't have the money to make a movie. They can make a comic book. I, I feel good about, uh, I feel good about the, the, uh, the fact that this will continue and there will always be an audience for people who want to read those stories. There will always be people who want to read those stories, I should say. Thank you. Uh, I agree with you. I think I've been my latest fascination and uh, obsession is Romance of Three Kingdoms, which is, you know, it, it's it's Sao Sao and Lu Bu and big burly Chinese Asian guys fighting each other. Um, you know, it's a book though. It's written like 300 AD. This is like a 1700 year old book, and it's still people look back to it, and and the the story just is so um, interesting and enticing and. It's a, you know, this is a story that's almost as old as the Bible, but people is are still woke? making, no, no. And that's the, and that's the thing. And that's the thing though. If I'm enjoying it, I am obviously not Chinese or Asian, right? but I enjoy it a lot. And in no way does that negatively impact me. It's a, it's a ridiculous notion. It's like many of the, many families I know, they know have young black kids, you know, one of their favorite shows is Dragon Ball. It's like. Really good stories, they cross these barriers. The racial, ethnic, whatever barriers don't matter. People don't actually care about that as much as they say we do. All they want is something that's entertaining and, and well put together and has a, some kind of good, thoughtful message. Not like in your face, you know, go go vote D or R today, but, you know, something smart. And uh, People are being I, told that they care. You yeah. care about your identity. You know what I mean? Like, don't you care about, I mean, even like... Uh, you know, Eric July is a man of color, is a, a, a MOC, he's a person of color. Uh, he's being told that he needs to identify with the color of his skin all the time and that, you know, by the way, and he probably does do that, but that comes with uh, social obligations and voting obligations, political obligations that he disagrees with. That's a very strange thing. I mean, it all comes down to that. You know, it doesn't really matter. The fact that he's just like, well, no, I'm a libertarian. I don't, you know, I don't agree with you. Well, then, and then they start calling him the N-word immediately without a second uh, hesitation. They're calling him the N-word uh, and uh, oppressing him. It's weird. It's very weird. It all comes down to that. What it all comes down to is political power. So they try to convince people that what you really are do care about is uh, your identity. You care, you care about your identity and how uh, you relate to uh, a group, a tribe of people who look like you on, on a surface level. And then they try to control you based on that. Like, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think people do care. I think people just care about good stories all the time. Well, I know from, you know, I, I struggle with some heavy disabilities and I've been a health reporter and disability reporter for five, six years now. 
and had most disabled people I know, they aren't like when they hear, oh, Disney is making an MCU show about uh, a deaf, one-legged veteran woman. And, and I don't hear from friends, oh, now I, I really want to watch that show because it has disability representation just like me. No, I have never heard that. They, but they might say that, though. I mean, the thing is, like, I have heard people say that. There's no follow through. And again, if that's the whole reason why that's the audience that you're seeking out, you want people who are uh, disabled, one-legged representation, you're going to get a very, very small audience. I don't know. How, what, what is your disability? Do you mind saying? or like... uh, My main one is uh, I have some heavy GI issues. My main one is the chronic pancreatitis. So my, my, pancreas, my, my pancreas is shot to heck. Hey. Nothing I did. We, it's just, you know, something I was born with. That's, you know, how these things sometimes happen. No, no cool origin story for me. Yeah, I, you're not like a heavy drinker. You know, you're, no, how do you hurt no, your pancreas? No, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. You, you, used, I, you, you would understand this because at different points in your life, you've uh, been LDS. You know, that, that's how I am. So I never drink, never did drugs, nothing fun. And now I have this, so I probably never will. But, oh, well. That's too bad. You should have at least uh, been able to drink yourself into uh, that disability and you know, at least had some fun. But yeah, you're L- are you LDS now? You're currently LDS? I, I am. Yeah, yeah. Born born okay. and raised. Yeah. It's it's different though. It's different out here in the Midwest than it is on either the West or East Coast. I'm looking for evidence on your bookshelf of LDS. Uh, nothing. I don't see anything. There's no proof that you're Mormon behind you. Where's a picture of the prophet Joseph Smith? Hmm? I, I don't have one. I have a, I have a picture of uh, you have Jesus a picture Christ, of Christ with the where? with the kids on my desk. You can't see it here, but of course, because that's the you background. have the one where he's uh, he's praying at the uh, in front of that hideous poltergeist tree uh, on the uh, right before he's about to be crucified. Oh yeah, I know the picture. Yeah, it's like uh, at night, kind of like blue. Yeah, no, I I don't own one of those, but I know what you're talking about. We had that one in my house growing up. And a picture of Jesus where he looks like Barry Gibb, like very handsome, uh, the depiction of Jesus uh, that everybody sees. You know, very handsome. Uh, anyway, it's nice to uh, nice to know that you're LDS. <laughs> it there are uh, there are a surprising amount of people who are all LDS Mormon, whatever term we want to use, that work in. You can't say culture. Mormon anymore. The the president of the church said no more using the word Mormon. My dad comes over here and lectures me. I go Mormon, and he goes, "They're Latter Day Saints, son. LDS. That's what you call us." Sorry, I I'm respectful of that, and I keep that in mind when I like I'm going to church and stuff. But it's like, it was it was just a decade ago. The big campaign, the PR campaign, the church was doing was you know. Uh, about Mormons, that that was the name of the documentary. So it's like I don't, I don't know. Yeah, they're trying to relate to people who, uh, you know, it's like you know, call you Mormon because of the Book of Mormon, and they go, well, surely that means you're Mormons, right? No, that's not what it means actually. But uh, it's interesting. Um, they go, uh, this is brought to you by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormons, in front of all those commercials where they tell you not to uh, steal things like that. We got $100 billion. I don't see any commercials from the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on TV anymore. What are they spending their money on? Um, uh, This is off topic, but my understanding, because I've read a few of these um, investigations, Wall Street Journal just had one recently, uh, maybe a month ago, 
Um, and the, the best they could tell was that the church was going to use the wealth that's built up to, uh, number one, make sure the church doesn't go into to in a financial uh, dire situation, and then two, to build lots and lots of temples. Uh, but even I think in the quote, even the story, the guy says, you know, when we started this, we didn't really know why we were doing it, which is a very, that's a very, that's a very LDS thing to say. Yeah. It is interesting, though, a lot of people who are very creative in, in the nerd space, like yourself, are members of the church or foreign members. Larry Correa, who we've had on the show as well, uh, over at Bain, I, I don't know if you've worked with him or not on anything No, before, I've had him but... on the show a couple of times. We get along real well. Yeah. I like Larry. You know? Yeah, that is interesting. It's one of those It's one of those things. Yeah, the um, Ender's Game. What's that guy's name? He's LDS. Orson Scott Card. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. The he was the first example of cancel culture in comics that I remember seeing. And it was way before the has Justine Sacco landed yet thing on Twitter. But I remember it's 2010, maybe 2012. Orson Scott Card wrote a Superman short story that DC was going to publish. And the entire industry had a nervous breakdown. We can't do this. He's anti-gay marriage. We can't publish a story from Orson Scott Card. He's anti-gay marriage. I'm bully I was going to do a story in the book. I'm not doing it anymore. If Orson Scott Card is in there, and yeah, I can't sure, remember, I think sure. they got it canceled. I think they they did get him canceled. There was, it, but it's so funny that they believed it because we now know like 99 percent of the people that's that that care enough to police people on Twitter in comment sections, social media, they aren't using that time reading or buying comics. Like that was the fundamental mistake they made. They thought they could replace their audience with a new one. And look, all these people are always talking about us. That, that that didn't translate into sales. That didn't translate into the caring for the characters or any of that. It was it was people like me or you who, you know, maybe we didn't talk about much, but we go to the comic book store every week or every other week and pick up our stories. We weren't bothering anyone. <laughs> but we that we weren't the ones they want anymore. Hey, you go to a comic book store, it's it's ninety nine point nine percent men. But you see, the, it's deceptive when you go to comic book conventions, which is when the only time the comic book professionals see other human beings and each other. Because we live, look, I'm, I'm down here in this basement drawing frogs and fish and weird stuff. I'm, you know, I don't really interact with, with normal people usually, but uh, I used to when I'd go to conventions and we'd all see each other and we'd all pretend we were famous. And the one thing that we, we also did was uh, notice that there were a lot of women in the audience. You just go, wow, there's a lot of girls that came to strange how they're all dressed like superheroes and trying to get attention. But there, uh, there are a lot of girls out there. And so we started to believe uh, that there were an equal number of women reading comic books, reading superheroes as men. And I don't know where that delusion has taken us, but it isn't true. Uh, it's, uh, it's either cosplay girls uh, who are, listen, they just want to, cosplay's awesome. It doesn't mean they're buying the comics. They just like to dress up like, you know, superheroes. Uh, or it's the girlfriend, the long-suffering girlfriends of the guys who are just like, I'm going to this convention. You want to come with me? And the girlfriend's like, okay. Same reason why they're usually, you know, 60, 40 men, women in Star Wars movie audiences. It's, it's guys and their girlfriends. They're on dates. You can't, I mean, women don't care about comics. They just don't. And they just don't care. I mean, there are very few people, very few women who actually care about comics. Zero women care about Star Wars. I mean, I would say you could, that's a rounding error. I'm not saying that zero women. I'm just saying you would round it down to zero, ladies. So don't like get upset. Don't be like, I like Star Wars. Yeah, I know you do. 
But you see, if I got a thousand women together, if I went to, I don't know, where do women hang out? I'm not even sure. Where do they hang out? It, uh, like, I don't know in physical location, but like in, it's Which Instagram these cults? days. Yeah, like, well, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying in person. If I were to go just deal with uh, women and I were to go to a thousand of them and just said, you like Star Wars, like uh, all of them would say no. Maybe two of them would say yes. But I could say to them, I could say, what if, what if I took Star Wars and I put more hideous lesbians in it? And then would you like it? And they would say no. I wouldn't like it anymore. It's, it's just not my thing. I like, you know what they like? They like those shows where the two brothers who are twins, they go and do fixer-uppers and sell houses. They like shows like that. They want to watch that. My wife is watching the Hallmark Channel Christmas specials in July. She, she doesn't care. She likes it. She's like, this just feels good to watch. I don't know. I just like it. I'm like, why, why do you like it? I don't know, because it's like everybody's happy, and it's just like, you know, there's no filth in it. Nice. That's what women like. They don't like Star Wars, and they don't like comic books, and they don't like... And by the way, those who are pretending to are only here to ruin it out of spite. What do guys like? Guys like He-Man? Well, we're going to make He-Man uh, cutesy. They like Thundercats? Oh, we're going to do a cow arts version of Thundercats. They're going to make fun don't, of them. Don't remind me. I was trying I was trying to block that one out. Yeah, like Ugh. they just want to make fun of you. Yeah. Like they, they really want to torture and make fun of you. It's the same reason why Disney's doing what they're doing. Uh, they really just want to bother you, you know. So uh, it's just like, you know, man, you know, just, you know, needling you, nagging you, you know, bothering you. Uh, that's what they want to do. Uh, you know, when you're at school, you, the little girl, uh, you know, annoying you and stuff in school. I had a little girl named Rosemary that was annoying me all the time. And I said, I don't like you, Rosemary. And she started to cry. Uh-oh. I was in the second grade. Young, young little Ethan Terrible. didn't understand so the dynamics I there. said, I don't like you. And she went, mm. it was terrible. It was very cruel to uh, little Rosemary. But anyway, that's what it is. It's the same kind of dynamic where they're just there to needle you and annoy you and whatever it is that you like. Because I don't know what it is. People talk about how men are very simple creatures. Like, you know, all I want to do is play video games. I just want to play the Atari uh, in 1982. And I, I just, I'm happy if I'm playing the Atari. Uh, men just want to play video games. They want to sit down, have a beer, just play video games. And women just see the, the, the ease at which men are contented and they want to disrupt it. This is something I wanted to ask you. I recently, I've been thinking about this a lot. In a way, is it a blessing that you got pushed out because now you have an independent thing that you, you created? that you control, you no longer have to be afraid of, of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. When I talk to someone like you or even Vic Mignogna now who who started up his own uh, voiceover studio, there is a kind of freedom there. There is kind mm -hmm. of a, a, a control. And I'm not saying that being what you went through wasn't hard or painful, but do you think at the long term it has been a blessing? Um, yes, but it doesn't mean I'm not extremely angry. Um, you know, it's like objectively speaking, uh, yeah, I think it, it's been really, really great in so many different ways because uh, I've been biting my tongue for 20 years, you know, working uh, with these people who were, uh, many of them, just uh, terrible human beings. And I'm a wonderful human being, despite what they say about me. When evil people say you're not a nice person, take it as a compliment. They don't know what nice people are. Uh, they're uh, either diabolical 
uh, sick people or they're afraid of them, afraid of themselves. You know, they're uh, afraid of speaking out. Um, but, uh, no, I, you know, I've been, I've been biting my tongue. I, I no longer am. But at the same time, uh, my feeling is that what happened to me was vicious and unfair. I feel like uh, they deliberately tried to make an example out of me because of a political grievance that they had all shared a psychic wound. Uh, they, they thought people like me were going to go away. They thought that, you know, um, we would never experience uh, political success again, uh, that our say uh, about the culture was obsolete to be ignored. And then 2016 happened and it shook them. It shook these terrible people so hard to know uh, that they did not enjoy absolute and total power. Uh, over what was going to go on, the opinions of this country, the laws, uh, you know, um, these, they, were, they were pretty sure that they were going to be able to socially engineer us and our children uh, into uh, eternity and forever. They're, they were pretty sure that globalism was going to win uh, their weird, you know, uh, agenda about making people genderless, non-binary, uh, taking children and perverting their minds, twisting them to believe that uh, telling them that they were boys or girls was just some random thing that a doctor just picked in midair when they were born and that didn't mean anything. Uh, really um, tearing down the borders of our country, they really thought they were going to be able to do this and nobody was going to push back. And then 2016 happened and it shook their entire world. All of them were confused and baffled that other people existed and that disagreed with them. And I remember that. I don't recognize my own country, they were saying. There were people who disagreed with them, uh, who were an effective political force. And now we are at war with them. It used to just be, well, this election, you guys win that election, we win, and that's just the way things go. But now, uh, now the, the idea that people who disagree with them could ever regain and retake power over them uh, in an election is something that cannot be permitted. So we're at war, and I, I feel like I was a, a casualty of that. I was not fully aware of uh, the culture war. I didn't understand that uh, I was playing a very dangerous game by speaking out in an industry controlled and dominated by radical leftists. And so what happened to me was unfair. I get to live with this idea now. I was just on Reddit. People are bragging about how wonderful my action figures are on Reddit. They're showing them, and everybody's amazed at how beautiful these are, and they are. But you see, you can't show Cyberfrog without some vicious reaction from left-wing lunatics who say, he's a Nazi. So I get to live with, for the rest of my life, because of uh, the industry that I chose to work in, this silly, frivolous industry. I get to live with uh, a certain population, certain number of uh, people who believe I'm a bigot and a racist. And I think I'm the most practical person in the world. I think, uh, you know, I see things for the way that they are. Uh, but I get to live with that. I get to live with lies being told about me all the time. Uh, that's what I that's what I don't like. I don't like the idea that I was not just removed from D.C. D.C. has every right to not work with me if they don't want to. They're stupid. Uh, for not doing that, but they have every right. Uh, what I didn't like was the way that they tried to salt the earth and make it so that I'd never be able to work in any creative industry again on my way out the door. That's what was unfair. That's what makes me angry. 
That's what I'm pushing back against. So, uh, yeah, was it a blessing? Yes, of course. Look around me. Look at the stuff that I've been able to make that I never would have been able to make before. Uh, that I wanted since uh, I was a kid. And now I've got it all. Do I like that? Yes. Do I like the freedom to be able to say whatever I want without fear of reprisal or consequences? I am way more powerful than any of the people who canceled me now. Do I like that? Yes, I do. Uh, but am I, am I not? Am I happy? No, I'm not happy. I'm angry. I, I will always probably be uh, angry about that. And I think uh, rightfully so. But I'm still happy. No, 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 let me take that back. I'm happy. I'm mostly happy, but also but also mad. They say things like, are you mad? Yes. Who wouldn't be mad about this? Of course. You know, it's that fury that, that drives me to create and to make it possible for other people to do the same thing. That anger burns inside of me. I believe that's, uh, that's God propelling me forward, saying this is unjust, this was unrighteous. Uh, time to make the most of it. I I agree. I think it is very frustrating that, especially when you were canceled, you know, you had worries about your kid, you know, your family is going through some strife. It was, just, and many of the people that went after you and tried to cancel you, which, which isn't really, it's not good of enough of a term to really describe everything that happens with it. But it's like those people were your friends, your colleagues, they knew you very personally, and that didn't seem to change much. It is really like that's horrible. Like it is really personal because it's it's one thing if it's a rando on Twitter or some person you never would respect professionally. It's another when it's the person that's been to your house. So it's another thing if it's, you know, the right. person people who used to talk yeah. to me all the time. It, it it's not just see the problem with it is is that really what they want the the fact that I still exist bothers them because they tried to kill me. And I, I want you to understand that that's what it is when you try to take somebody's livelihood away, when you try to make it so that they can't feed themselves or their family anymore. You're trying to kill them, okay? And I'm, I'm, I didn't die. I lived. Uh, and I'm not going away. I'm still here. And that's tremendously annoying and frustrating that I might show up at a convention. I might look them in the eyes. I know. I still, I still live. I live. Uh, but... A lot of people who are canceled, and the, the word canceled means your existence is canceled. It's not just fired. Fired is, you can recover from that. Cancel culture is different. They, they're literally trying to get you to kill yourself by taking away all of their options, taking away all of your opportunities, your future, uh, taking away uh, people not wanting to associate with you, getting you shunned. Uh, people will, will shun you out of fear. I've, I definitely still have people who, like cyber frog you know, creators and comics who would like to d draw a little some some for me because I pay really well, but cannot because they're terrified. And the people, my cancelers, are happy to know that. They're absolutely happy to know uh, that they still inspire fear in others. Uh, and um, that, again, you know, it's how I know. Every day I wake up and I know I'm, I'm on the side of righteousness. Every day I know uh, that I am an instrument of the Lord. Every day I know that. I wake up, I get out of bed, and I, I say uh, I am a, uh imperfect instrument of God, uh, but I'm definitely an instrument of God's, um, and that's uh, undeniable. I feel his presence constantly uh, when I'm on the Internet, even when I'm using the F word. Uh, I'm on the Internet. I feel God 
working through me. I know that to be true. Uh, and uh, I cannot fail. You've had a tremendously positive influence in comics. It's a, It's been an amazing thing to see in this last year. The growth of so many people getting independent comics. Eric July and his company, Rip Reverse, have been huge successes. And they obviously were taking a lot of notes from what you had already done. They're not just the only ones, though. Lots of different YouTubers and influencers are doing this. People who worked in comics and said they would never come out you know, out of the, the big two are now doing exactly that or trying to copy you know, what you've already created. There is a huge growth, and it gives me a lot of hope for the future. You know, I, have, I love comics, and it, I sometimes, too, get depressed because it's like there was such an interesting legacy, and there was real quality, and there was really great writers and artists. We just had uh, Romita Sr. pass away, which is really sad. It's like we're never getting that era back. But then I look at what you're doing, what Eric July does, and, you know, and I don't always agree with all all they do or I think they could improve in certain ways. But it gives me hope because I'm like, yes, that part may that may fall apart. But the desire for comics, that, that creative energy, that that love of the medium is going to remain. Well, I agree. Um. What, so here's a good question for you. What can people do if they themselves want to get into comics, and how can we keep up keep up this momentum we've got? Does this, do more people need to get working into it? Is this an issue of having enough influence and audience? Because I remember you said this in the past, that like basically your plan was you were going to build up an audience. That's why you focused on YouTube. You are going to build up an audience, and then you were going to use that audience to help launch comics projects, which you've successfully done. What about someone that may not have an audience? Is, is comics still something that they should look into? I don't know. I can't say yes or no. I mean, it really is a matter of what their reasons are for wanting to do it. Um, not everybody should make comics. Not everybody can make comics. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of factors that have to come into play. You have to spend years and years learning how to make comics first. And I think there is a... there. Uh, there are a lot of people who are just deciding that well, I'm going to make comics. That's just the product that I'm going to make. Uh, and I don't like that so much. I think you really need to focus on the art form of the, the actual craft of learning how to tell a story. Uh, and it has to be in you. But if that's who you are and you're somebody who is compelled to make comic books and you're going to do it, then uh, really what you should do is you should find um, your way towards, if you're not somebody who is eloquent, uh, who is, charismatic who can actually sell your own product you need to find your way to a community that is uh you know you could be a part of comics gate you could join us here uh and just make friends uh, just be helpful and then just um ask people to help promote your project and they will most of the time it, it might not be me right away but you know projects sort of find their way everybody finds their own level you don't start out that way you might start at the bottom but, I mean, if your stuff is really, really good, you are going to rise to the top. It's just going to take a little bit of time. Um, I, I always find, you know, I, I found Irene Strakowski. I, I can't believe how good she is. I didn't I didn't know about her. She's been working within Comicsgate for like a year and a half, two years, before I started to promote her and find her. Um, but she's a, an extraordinarily gifted uh, storyteller and artist. Uh, they'll find you eventually. We will find you. Um, but uh, the great thing about Comicsgate is just the idea of uh, comic book professionals and uh, comic book creatives 
promoting each other, uh, giving each other the uh, uh, the uh, attention, the audience uh, that they need to uh, perhaps get funded and be able to make comics. Do you think this, maybe this is a bit of a, a spicy question, so if you want to like uh, give a no response, that's fine. I've, some of the interesting things I think I've seen in this space is like the criticism of Eric July and his and his uh, books, and some a lot of that obviously is like jealousy. Um, a lot of those criticisms, of course, are bad faith. But it, I did think that some of it was looking at more artistically, and for me, that was like maybe this is an improvement because people are not just buying the books, but they're beginning to think about these books artistically, that their value, their quality, Good, and yes. they're having those kinds yeah. of discussions. Do you, is that is that a positive? Is that like a sign that people are engaging more with the product because it seems like sometimes in the past people i'm not putting people down for doing this but you know they're more blindly supporting these projects but they're not so much as engaging with the medium itself well one of the things that i've been saying uh over and over again uh and really hammering this home recently what my new message is because i didn't know i had to say this but i apparently i do read the comic books that you buy <laughs> i mean i we appreciate your support thank you so much for support you don't have to Obviously, we'd rather just have your support than not have your support. But once you've bought the comic books, sit down and read them. If you actually care about the culture war, if you actually care about, uh, you know, these creators influencing the culture in some way, then just buying their comic book and then putting it away isn't enough. You actually do have to sit down and read the comic book and then give some feedback on the Internet. Uh, you know, uh, you can make a review video. You can tweet out, hey, I just read Cyberfrog Wreck Planet. Here's what I thought. This was good. This wasn't so good. Uh, you know, I can't wait for the next one, or I'm not going to get the next one, whatever it is. Your commentary is very, very important. Um, at the same time, oh, you know, we have to be listening for criticism because we're building our own ecosystem here. Ecosystem. Uh, that's what we're building here. We don't have the benefit uh, we're, we've been shut out of the larger mainstream comic book industry. We're not going to receive uh, criticism from CBR. And by the way, even if we were, the, their criticism has been completely corrupted. Uh, their review sites have become shill sites looking for access uh, to these companies and these creators. So all of their books get nines out of 10, you know, 9.5, 10 out of 10. It's just shit. This is like not important, not good criticism. But when you have people in this space, and I said this before, and a lot of my peers thought I was crazy and were angry with me for saying this, uh, there's no, there's such a thing as uh, reviewing in bad faith. I agree with that or good faith. But there's no such thing as uh, bad faith, good criticism. There's no such thing as that. Uh, people, uh, believe it or not, the best criticism that you're going to receive uh, is going to come oftentimes from people who hate you and want to destroy you or embarrass you. Uh, that's the best criticism. The most pointed and insightful, helpful criticism is going to come from people who don't like you. And the reason for that is simple. Um, they're trying to make you look stupid and themselves look smart. So oftentimes, they're going to see things within your work that you missed. And I'm not saying you need to thank these people. I'm not saying you need to say, wow, you're so smart and I'm so dumb. You're right. But read their criticism carefully and think about it. And then you'll know 
I think I, I got I got to I believe in humanity enough. Hopefully, there people have egos and all this stuff. I understand that. I certainly do. But when I read some criticism from somebody who hates me, and that happens a lot, I know in my heart if they're right. When somebody says your book is just a battle toads ripoff. I know it isn't because I didn't know what Battletoads was when I created Cyberfrog. It, it's a Turtles ripoff, okay, with Spider-Man and Spawn and Pit in it. That's what it is. I know that. So I just ignore that. that that's meaningless to me. Uh, but when somebody might say, hey, uh, the first book was a whole lot of exposition and not enough story, and it ended too suddenly, uh, or this dialogue here, little uh, clunky, little clunky dialogue, uh, or this wasn't clear. This whole thing wasn't clear. I don't understand this character's motivation. Why did they do this? I'm going to know that that is probably pretty good criticism. And even if it's coming from somebody who I hate, even if it were coming from like Hillary Clinton, uh, the temptation would be to just ignore it. But you can't. You have to just think about it and go, okay, look, I don't care about them. I care about my audience and I care about my story. So if these people are looking to pick my book apart and tell me what I did wrong, I'm going to listen. Sometimes I may say, okay, cool, thank you. One thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to argue with them, okay? That's the worst thing. When I, I used to do that. I'd receive criticism, and there's a temptation to argue with people. No, you're wrong about your criticism. Just say thanks, okay? You don't, arguing with them shows weakness. Um, but um, take it to heart. Think about it and then try to fix the mistake that you made next time around. And you're going to become a better storyteller. Ultimately, the only thing that matters here, where the money is going to come from, since we all care about making money from this, the money's going to come from your story. Story, 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 story. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, worth billions of dollars. It's just one story, but it's made billions of dollars because it's a good story. There's no limit to how much a story, how much money a story can make, how many lives a good story can change. So uh, keep your ears open, keep your ego in check, uh, listen to the criticism that you receive, stop worrying about who, who it's coming from, it doesn't, it's irrelevant, it's either good or it's not good, it's either true or it's not true, uh, and improve. And then, you know, again, I would tell the audience, please, like, we can't do it without you. So please do read the comics and review them. Uh, and let's start building our little geeko system. Excellent. Uh, I'll ask you one more question here before we wrap up. Uh, what are you into right now? Uh, are you watching something? Are you playing a game? What What are you obsessed or fascinated in the world of entertainment at the moment? Are, are, or are you such a workaholic you hardly ever have time to, you know watch the latest i don't know if you watch anime but uh watch the latest tv show read the newest book like what do you like to do for fun well uh i'm a I'm, i gotta say like uh, my current loves my current obsessions are the phillies the philadelphia phillies which uh I'm, i watch their baseball game i watch baseball every day if i can i like to go to the games um uh, when i can't do that i watch uh, a lot of youtube a lot of youtube i, I really like um Revenge of the Sis. I think those guys are really funny. I, I get a lot of criticism for that. I don't really know why, because I watch that show and I think they're funny. Those guys are sharp. They're very funny. Uh, I like uh, a lot of YouTube shows like that. Uh, and um, I watch gangster movies. 
So it's not the stuff that it has nothing to do with the stuff that I do. It's usually stuff that's a distraction from what it is that I'm producing because I live in my own world. I don't need to be influenced by, I don't watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons or movies. I don't watch them. I don't care about them. Uh, I think they would be a distraction uh, and they would probably be not a distraction. I think they would probably influence my own work. I'd, I'd end up subconsciously stealing from them. Uh, Cyberfrog is already similar enough to the turtles. I don't, I don't need anything like that. So I, I kind of try to just watch things that are, that are different from that and, and let those influences, you know, watching the Sopranos and letting elements of the Sopranos work their way into Cyberfrog in terms of storytelling and, uh, things like that. Um, probably healthier, probably better. Uh, love the walking dead, love zombies, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but that's about, that's about it. And, uh, you know, again, music, always music, classical music lately. Interestingly enough, I wasn't really a big fan, but finding myself listening to Mozart, finding myself listening to, uh, Bach is in the new, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach is in the new Cyberfrog trailer. It just works. It's uh, inspiring. How, okay. Uh, we'll make this the official last question. So action figures, how do you put together such good action figures? Cause I've seen a lot <laughs> of bad action figures in recent yeah. years, even from like big companies like Disney, like the, they're just badly made. So how do you find someone that's really good at this? Do you design the figures yourself? How do you make that happen? Well, what you do is you, uh, if you have millions of dollars, uh, what you do is you find action figures that you like and you hire the people who made them. That's what you do. That's all it is. That's the secret. And they work for you now. And they make the stuff that you want to make. Uh, and I, you know, again, I, I set out to make the, uh, for the money that I had to spend. And I spent a lot. I spent over a million dollars making these toys. Um, for the money that I had to spend, I set out to make the best possible action figures that I could. And I based that on stuff that I'd already seen that I liked. And I hired people and their privacy. Um, I keep their privacy uh, intact and check. Uh, and they work for me and I, you know, it's, uh, it's really nice. I'm, I'm, I'm very involved in it. I do sketches. I, uh, have to look and review over samples all the time and just, uh, it's a lot of thought work. Uh, and it, it does take a long, long time to make these action figures. I'm never going to be a prolific action figure toy maker, but I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to do another uh, run a couple of years. I'm going to do a wave two of Cyberfrog. God willing, if I can get funded, uh, for them. And uh, just keep doing this because I love it so much. Love making toys. No, it's awesome. It, you, you're, it feels like you're taking the Todd McFarlane path there with uh, with your action figures. You're like, the, you're making the Cyber Frog its own whole big branded thing. It's exciting to see. I'd like to. I, I don't know. Uh, you know. Todd McFarlane, I think, obviously, like Todd McFarlane, uh, would kind of got his start during what was the equivalent of the Roaring Twenties. Uh, of comics. I'm in the, the heart of the Great Depression. So it's like the big, it's a big difference. It's like he had tons of money to work with and basically everybody in the press wanted to help him and all this stuff. Well, uh, I am, um, uh, I'm basically a comic book pariah, uh, working in the wilderness of a comic book industry that has made itself destitute. And yet once again, <laughs> that's all I can say. So imagine, imagine if I had his resources and lived in his world and his time period, what we could have done. Um, but more than anything, more than the toys, 
you know, always story. Cyberfrog 2 Wreck Planet shipping out, still shipping out right now. You can still get it on the Cyberfrog Dark Harvest campaign. You can get Cyberfrog Blood Honey, Cyberfrog Wreck Planet, and then of course Cyberfrog 3 Red Extermination, which is live right now on Indiegogo. And I invite you, I implore you, actually, not invite, I implore you, I beg you, go over there. Uh, it's e begging. Go over there and support Cyberfrog 3. Reserve a copy of it. Um, by uh, giving me $25 so that I can continue uh, in this work that I think is important and fun. And I, I thank you. I thank everybody that already has. Amazing. Excellent. So you, you think of yourself less like the Todd McFarlane of comics, but more like the Shirley Temple? Uh, I think of myself more like the Willy Wonka uh, of comics. Just uh, a weirdo who makes amazing things and nobody is unknowable, but people whisper about him. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, listen, come around here and I'll throw you in a chocolate river or I don't know what I'll do, but it might not go well. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I see myself more like that. Okay. Well, Hey, Ethan, thank you for coming on again. It was so much fun. I have lots of respect for what you do, so I appreciate it. Um, everyone, you should go check out, uh, Ethan Van Skyver on his social media. He has Twitter. Go check out the latest campaign. Um, with me and you'll be. In a world of pure imagination, take one look and you'll see you could join Cyberfrog Nation. Come with me, Cyberfrog 3, going back red extermination. <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't bad, really actually. All right, that yeah. wasn't bad. What are you going to do? Okay, and on that note, everyone, I think we're going to end it here. Thank you once again to everyone that took the time to watch and listen to the show. Uh, thank you to Bain Books Publishing and Young Voices for helping put the show together. Thank you to my editor, Chris Hollowicki, who makes me look much more competent and interesting than I actually am. And once again, to all you listeners out there. Until next time, my friends, keep geeking out. <laughs>